Well, good evening, everybody. My name is Amy, and I'm the executive pastor here. And it kind of dawned on me a few days ago that my sermon is going to open with a story from Southeast Asia, and last week, Liz's sermon opened with a story from Southeast Asia. So I promise this is not like a new thing we're doing here. It's just a coincidence. So now for that story from Southeast Asia. Uh, Some of you know this about me already, but the job that brought me here uh, about 15 years ago was working as the chief of staff for an international religious freedom organization. And so we went around the world supporting people of different minority faiths who were being persecuted, Muslims and Sikhs and Zoroastrians, but mostly Christians, frankly, because there are a lot of Christians being persecuted around the world. So we worked in places like China, Laos, Vietnam, North Korea, Pakistan, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, lots of Stan countries, places where the governments were kind of famous for clamping down on people of faith. And while most religious freedom organizations focus on supporting the victims of persecution, which is really important work, they might visit them in prison or provide legal aid or provide them food or blankets, My organization was a little bit different because we actually worked directly with the governments doing the persecuting. We would listen to them. We'd hear what they were worried about. We'd try to help them see why it was in their best interest to stop persecuting people. And then we would try to help them change their laws and policies in a way that would work for them. And what that means is that I have sat in little plastic chairs drinking tea in some very badly decorated rooms in lots of countries around the world talking to these notorious persecutors and hearing what makes them tick, hearing what it is about the gospel of Jesus Christ that is so threatening to them. And what I heard from them again and again and again was that what they most wanted was just to hold on to their power. Now, sometimes this is because they really were egomaniacal ideologues and dictators, but more often it was because it felt like their power was essential to maintaining the social fabric where they lived, to holding on to their cultural identity, holding on to their national security, to the things they were really worried about. And they were scared that the gospel of Jesus was going to disrupt all of that. And so they would beat up pastors and throw them in jail and burn their property and threaten their children. But it also never really seemed to work, and that baffled them. So I want to tell one story from that part of my life because I think it kind of mirrors what's happening in this Acts passage, kind of brings it into the modern day. So a few years back, I led this delegation to a little village called Tafin. Yeah, thank you. Uh, up in this kind of remote corner of northern Vietnam. And we were there to meet with local government officials, local police, and also with local house church pastors. And one conversation there stands out to me. We were meeting with the head of the local Communist Party. He was young, not that much older than me. He had kind of tired eyes. He was soft-spoken. He was wearing kind of standard olive jumpsuit with red tassels that a lot of the communist officials were into at the time. And he told me how in Tofen Village, the most important thing was harmony. And he saw his job as guarding that harmony. But he felt like it had come under threat because there was this radio program out of the Philippines that had started 
bringing the gospel in the local dialect into that village. And after a long time of this broadcast being on the air, about three years before my conversation there, the first person in Tafin had converted to Christianity. And then another person, and then another, and then whole families, and then the family next door. And so by the time we were talking, this official thought there were probably like 200 Christians in this little village. And then later, when I met with the house pastors, they kind of laughed, like 200. There are thousands of Christians in this part of Vietnam. It was like something out of Acts. It was really exciting. But it was also complicated, because as much as I wanted to be able to reassure this guy that he didn't have anything to worry about, he could just keep protecting harmony, I couldn't. Because sometimes the gospel just is disruptive. And it really was in Ta Fen. For one, the Christians there had stopped making animal sacrifices. There were these village gods, and everyone was supposed to sacrifice animals to them all the time to keep them happy. And the Christians were going around saying, no, Jesus is the once and for all sacrifice, and he's the one true God, and we don't have to all go into debt paying for these animals to make these sacrifices. And so for the Christians who were like the poorest of the poor, this was amazing, liberating news. But for their neighbors, it felt like betrayal and like laziness, like they had just stopped buying into this system. And that wasn't all, because the gospel was also disrupting all of family life, because these new Christians had read or heard about how Jesus treated women. And they had read or heard about how Paul had said there was no male or female in Christ. And all of a sudden, the men stopped beating their wives. They stopped treating their little girls like they were nothing. They started to treat them with dignity and respect. And then the non-Christian women around them saw what was happening, and they wanted to know about Jesus. So the gospel was highly, highly, highly disruptive to this village. And this local official felt like he was losing control, like everything was unraveling and he couldn't hold it together, and he was scared, and so he persecuted. And even though it never really worked, he just kept doing it. And there's something similar happening in the passage tonight because we see Paul and Barnabas preaching this disruptive gospel Everywhere they go, one town, then another, then another, then back to that town, then sail to another town. And we see people receive this message as liberating, and then we see some people receive it as really threatening. And we also see no matter how much persecution they can throw at Paul and Barnabas, it doesn't seem to work. The church just keeps growing. The gospel keeps moving. So I want to talk about persecution tonight, or I mean, actually, I really don't want to talk about persecution tonight, but that's kind of where this passage and where our gospel passage takes us. I don't want to talk about it because we live in this time where people cry persecution for being told happy holidays. And so even though I really wish I didn't need to be, I want to be clear for just a minute the persecution does not mean losing the culture wars. It doesn't mean losing prestige. 
or losing some sense of a privileged status that Christianity maybe used to have, maybe doesn't have so much anymore in this country. Persecution is not about losing ground or losing elections. Persecution looks like Paul in this passage who gets stoned by a mob because he just won't stop preaching Jesus. And it looks like the Toffin village pastor I met, whose back was covered in scars, whose only Bible had been confiscated, whose farm had been burned to the ground repeatedly, and yet who smiled when he talked about Jesus. So we have to be honest. We have to admit that most of us are not really being persecuted. We are not being hated for Jesus' name's sake, like our gospel reading said. And we might experience rejection when people find out what we believe, and that really does hurt. Or we might feel worried about talking about our faith because maybe we don't want to be lumped in with Christians who have scandals surrounding them or politics that we don't like. And that's hard too. But as long as we are praying safely and openly in this building, while in other parts of the world, other Christians are praying behind closed doors with the blinds closed or praying alone on a prison floor, we just can't really honestly say that we experience persecution. But why is that? Why aren't we persecuted? I mean, the main reason is really obvious. We live in this remarkable country where we have incredible freedoms to speak and to worship and assemble, and they're protected. And that is no small thing. So many people would give anything for that kind of freedom. And so we need to be grateful for that gift. We need to really pray about how we steward that for the kingdom. But I do wonder if that is the only reason we're not experiencing persecution. Because actually, the Roman Empire at the time of Paul and Barnabas had a fair amount of religious freedom. Certainly not like we have here, but the really bad persecution isn't going to ramp up for a couple hundred years. And so most of the religious groups there were granted some freedom to worship and to meet and to teach what they wanted. There were definitely restrictions and taxes and limitations and some indignities. But for the most part, they were kind of left alone. And that means that the persecution that Paul and Barnabas are facing isn't because their government is just incredibly repressive. It's because the gospel of Jesus was doing what it does. It was being disruptive. <clears throat> the text tells us again and again and again, Barnabas and Paul are preaching and their preaching disrupts. It brings joy and comfort and reconciliation over here. And it brings fear and opposition, and threats over here. So let's look at that preaching. If you recall, Paul and Barnabas, they start off in Iconium, where they walked into the synagogue and they started to preach. And the Jewish synagogue back then kind of functioned like a public square, like a really good library, a place people got together to talk about ideas, to debate things, to discuss. This was a really good place to go in a new city to talk about Jesus. And the text doesn't actually tell us what they preached, but it tells us that they spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed, which is actually kind of amazing. 
So we know that their preaching was public. We know that it was incredibly winsome. And we know that it was powerfully reconciling. Because whatever they're saying is starting to tear down that ancient divide between Jews and Gentiles, between insider and outsider. And this is a really disruptive gospel that dares to say that Jesus is the Messiah and the King that the Jews and all their prophets have been hoping and praying for for their whole history as a people, and that now the Gentiles get in too. This is the disruptive gospel message of enemy love, of the last being first, of the unclean being made clean, of the outsider and the stranger being brought in and given a seat at the table. And so obviously, some of the people who heard this didn't like it. They wanted things to stay the way they had always been, Jew and Gentile, in and out, clean and unclean. And so they started stirring up dissent and rumors and slander against Paul and Barnabas. And the city almost splits in two over this preaching. And in the midst of all this turmoil, they just keep going. They keep preaching. And God actually gives them signs and wonders to accompany what they say. So they're not just talking about what God can do now. They're living it. They're embodying it. But eventually the mob that forms against them starts to threaten violence, and so they flee. They flee and they preach some more. They are so tenacious. But that mob follows them, and they stone Paul within an inch of his life. They drag him out of the city. They leave him there to die. Somehow he doesn't die. The disciples come around him. They help him get back into town, and he preaches some more. Can you imagine listening to that sermon Can you imagine seeing Paul, who is bloody and beaten, he's all bruised, he must have been swollen, and he's preaching? And this is where we get a clue to the content of his preaching, because verse 22 tells us, he encouraged the disciples to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. I feel like if we were looking at Paul, we would be like, yeah, that is pretty obvious, based on your appearance. Paul is not preaching comfort to them. He's not preaching ease or prosperity. He's preaching suffering, and he's doing it wounded. Again and again and again and again, Paul and Barnabas are preaching this public, winsome, reconciling, tenacious, embodied, wounded gospel And we live in a really different time and place, and we are not itinerant church planters and tent makers like Paul. But we are all called to preach the gospel like that, not just with our words, but with our whole lives, to preach the gospel in all of its disruptive power, to allow Jesus to dismantle the other powers around us and in us and through us, And I think that begs the question, is our gospel disruptive? Is it possible that our experience of persecution is so mild because our proclamation of the gospel is so mild? And I don't know. I don't know. But I think it's worth asking ourselves, 
where we want to shrink back from what is most provocative, most disruptive about the gospel. Where do we want to settle for what is safest? Where do we settle for a gospel that doesn't disrupt or offend, that doesn't take seriously our addictions to money and sex and power and praise, doesn't take seriously our desperate need for Jesus to free us. A gospel that doesn't require us to love our enemies, to forgive people 70 times, seven times, to welcome the stranger, to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to lay down our lives. Is our gospel disruptive enough? Well, Finally, I just want to make a little footnote on this passage. Because over the course of this passage and through a lot of Acts, Paul and Barnabas show us the whole range of possible Christian responses to persecution. So we see, for one, active resistance. This is when people are in their face shouting at them, trying to get them out of town, and they just keep going. They keep preaching. They are actively proclaiming the gospel. So that's one response. Another response we see that I didn't really touch on, but there is a lot of it in this passage, is just patient endurance. There's a lot of remaining. There's a lot of kind of shoring up and gathering around and getting strengthened to keep going. There's patient endurance in the face of persecution. And then we see a third response, and that's fleeing. They flee Iconium when the crowd wants to stone them. Unfortunately, they get found anyway, but they flee. They hear about this plot. They decide it's getting too intense here. It's time to escape. And sometimes that is a valid and the entirely best response to persecution and to threats of violence. And even Jesus said, when you're persecuted in one town, flee to the next. I hope none of us are ever going to face persecution to such an extent that fleeing is our best or our only option. But we have brothers and sisters who face this every day. And they are flooding across borders. They are sitting in refugee camps around the world. And they need our prayers and our compassion. And when I used to go into these villages and meet Christians who had been persecuted, Without fail, they always asked me for the same thing. Not money, not food, not legal aid. They just asked me to remember them. They always asked me to tell their stories. They always asked me to pray for them. So I want to close with a reminder to us, as people who are mostly unpersecuted, people who may never need to flee, to pray for Christians who must and to honor them and to stand in solidarity with them by preaching a disruptive gospel. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.